0: When I looked at Wikipedia for a network effect, the graphic illustrating a network good in Facebook is a rotary telephone.
1: What you're saying is right, that this is a more sophisticated approach by a long shot. That doesn't in and of itself make it better? Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment stories from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes investment analysis work. I'm Daniel Schwartzman
0: and I'm Mike Taylor
1: today we're continuing an unintentional series of looking at mega caps by discussing one of the most scrutinized companies in the world Facebook first some background and disclosure Seeking Alpha is a website where investors around the world share their investment ideas and analysis neither Mike nor I have any positions in any companies discussed and nothing on here should be taken as investment advice if you like what we're doing please leave a review and subscribe to Behind the Idea on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Today's topic. You're probably sick of hearing about Facebook. We'll try to avoid repeating the recent headlines. But NYU professor Ashwath Demodaran, the so-called Dean of Valuation, just posted an analysis on the company that provides a nice framework for assessing the company in the light of recent controversy to get down to the bottom line. Is Facebook a buy? The theme of today's episode, How do we change our minds when the facts change around
0: us? Mike, what's Professor Damodaran's thesis on Facebook? It's pretty straight ahead. He's basically saying, you know, amid all the attention from regulators and criticism of users that Facebook's costs will go up as they address regulatory issues and as they change positioning with respect to Facebook's user base. But ultimately, users are gonna stick around. And the advertisers that are Facebook's customers that generate the revenues will also stick around. And the business model is so solid that the company is a buy. And since it's such a straight ahead thesis, I think we should get past that for now and really dive into some of the things that you want to talk about with respect to this article. So if it's not the thesis itself, what, why are we talking about this article?
1: So I thought there were three things that are really interesting here. There is his framework itself and how he is does a really nice job of updating his views on Facebook as things change. It's so hard, I think, to do that. And the professor's approach here is really nice. So that's where I wanted to start. I'm also really interested in how he then translates that to valuation. Obviously, Professor DeModeran is the dean of is – is a I don't think an actual title but it's something that he's known for and it really is just a nice piece of work here as far as how he incorporates a narrative into numbers to make a quantitatively derived analysis of the company and then lastly he has a throwaway comment that refers to other writing that he's done on margin of safety but I think it's really interesting his approach there and so I wanted to I wanted to hit on that as well and so just Going to the first point, he adopts a framework to adopt, allows him to update his views on the company. There were a couple quotes that I really liked in here to pull from to to get at what I'm meaning by this. He says at one point he owned Facebook when it hit its bottom back in 2012 when it debuted on the market, and he sold it at 50. The stock, even at its pullback recently, was at 150. So he missed out on a lot, and. He said, I underestimated it. I underestimated how much Google and Facebook would expand the market and dominate it. But I also have no regrets about selling too early. And he says, I stuck to my process. And so I really like that. But I also think it's impressive. He, he then revisited the company, it sounds like, in 2016 and said, look, I was wrong. I'm going to buy shares again. And I think that's a really tough thing for me to do and for yeah. investors to do is to sell a company and then go back when it's at a higher price than they sold and say, you know what, this is a good story. So, uh, how, how did you view that? How did you, when you read that, did that stand out or how are you, how would you react to that?
0: Yeah, I, it resonated with, I, you know, it made me feel better kind of in a weird way. It was sort of heartwarming that this valuation professor and total expert had this experience of selling earlier than was the most profitable. One of the first individual investments I made was in a spinoff from Honeywell called Advance 6, and I no longer hold the stock, mm-hmm. but I was reading Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, and he talks about spinoffs, and then one came along. I did my homework the way that Greenblatt would have wanted me to. I came mm-hmm. up with a price range that I thought I came with a fair valuation and also a guess of where the market might price it. It hit a buy spot for me. And then it rose about 40%, I think, in 90 days and hit my fair value. And I was actually going back and forth with you, Daniel, about what to do. So I was like, first of all, this was one of my first experiences in individual stock market. I was like, what do I do? It hit my fair value. And you were like, When it hits my fair value, I tend to sell. So I did sell. And then the same thing sort of happened to me. It tripled and I missed out on a lot of upside. So getting back to the professor here, falling back on your investment process, I guess, can be a way to comfort yourself when this happens because you're going to have things go against you in a lot of different ways. You'll sell at a loss sometimes. You'll sell too early. You'll average down on a total loser. Like all that stuff is going to happen. Uh, I think it's good that, to have perspective that you need to stick with a process that works for you. And he has so much conviction in that article and has so much conviction in his process that he's, it an, enables him to be kind of nimble in this way and get out of this emotional problem. And I think that's to your second point, that it's good that he can revisit a stock that he's already gone over. Man, I'm fearful to do that. I don't know if I'm ever going to look at Advanced 6 again, because it has so much emotional baggage from that initial ride. I basically don't trust myself to stick to my process. So I think it's a real sign of a kind of mature portfolio management Process and level of expertise that he's able to bite the bullet and come back. I'm really impressed, and it also made me feel better about my own experiences investing. So, but you, what else do you think? It seems like we're trying to get at something bigger here.
1: What's interesting to me about Facebook? It, it, it's we talked about Google last week, and it's a company everybody knows. And Facebook, everybody knows. It, he said they have 2.1 billion users, and chances are everybody listening to this has used. Facebook and or one of its properties at some point. And it's hard to get yourself out of what you already know. And so what I'm impressed by is this process. And I remember I owned a trivial position in Advanced 6 too because I used to own Honeywell. And so I remember it was fun for us to talk about that. And I, my mistake with Advanced 6 is my process was similar is just buy on the quantitative elements and it got, we, we sort of swapped homework, but I never did buy beyond my trivial position. And I missed out on a big move because I was trying to incorporate another element. I was trying to understand quality and I thought it was a low quality company
0: and I didn't. And so I guess. I can't believe you skipped that. It's like a classic cigar, butt. I totally, I totally beat you on the band six. You smoked me. I whacked you, man.
1: But that's, I think it's, so it's about sticking to your process. And I have a friend who, who he said something like, S- stock market is the worst because you regret the decisions you make and you regret the decisions you don't make. And <laughs> you have to deal with that. You have to deal with, I just came from seeing my brother who totally invested in crypto based on fear of missing out and it didn't work out right. for him. Oh, and, God. And that's you have to be comfortable with the fact that other people are going to make money their way. You have to always improve your process. And so I guess that's why I'm so impressed. Because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, he acknowledges what his process is. He acknowledges that he missed out on money, but doesn't regret it. And at the same time, he is able to continue to update his thinking by looking at the stock again, which I totally get what you're saying. I've had success with stocks where they sort of are range bound and they go up and then they go down and I go, I buy it back in when they're down. But I don't know. I think there's maybe one company where I've been able to assess it and decide actually I think this is better than I realized and bought bought in at a higher price than previous shares to average up. And yeah, I think it's hard. And so the fact that his experience he's been able to update his information and his mindset while sticking to what works for him, I think is a great example. And so I guess that was
0: that was the first point that I thought was so, that's what I wanted to get at there. Great. Okay. I, I want to touch on one more thing about this that occurred to me, which is Professor de Moderen, he did evaluation of Valiant amid the bloodbath for Valiant. And so I think one thing that we're taking away from this he's able to go after story companies in a way that I think you or I would gravitate towards things that people aren't really looking at. Mm -hmm. And his framework is so robust that he's comfortable looking at companies that are in the spotlight right now and tackling valuations of those where I think we just, and we had this problem with Google in our last podcast, that if everyone 's looking at it, how do we get any conviction that we have edge? I will get into this later, but I think he does a great job of assessing the edge or the amount the the market disconnect to his the best of his ability, sort of regardless of how how many other people are looking at the company, how efficiently the stock might already be priced and that I think that calls calls out a limitation of our the approach that we take, which is sort of a classic special situations value type approach. Uh, this rounds it out and lets you look at a Facebook, which is something that I, I don't think I can do with much confidence. So in addition to coming back to a story that you've already left behind and shedding that baggage, it's also able to avoid the baggage of These super giant tech companies or growth companies. So that's just another sort of piece of this, applying this rigid framework. That's the other piece. He's really able to escape the emotional baggage of the news or of his own experience. So what's next, Daniel? So let's
1: go into how he does that. What I like, the next thing I like is how he just translates. We have all this noise, hashtag delete Facebook or all the kids are getting off Facebook, or the government is gonna start regulating, or the data laws that are in the EU, or they only have so much more that they can grow if they're already 2.1 billion. And he, he, he translates that into numbers. right? Yeah. He, and so that's what I like. So he the meat of his article is about, let's go through the numbers, let's go through a scenario that's realistic. And of course, this is the garbage in, garbage out, Challenge is that your numbers are only as good as what actually happens, but that 's where you tie narrative into numbers. so what he does is he says here 's what I think is going to happen with user loss and he quotes articles and he looks at surveys and everything else, so it 's based on something here 's what I think is going to happen with advertising and he looks at a couple companies that have left, but he makes an argument for where he thinks advertising will go here 's what the costs are going to be of data restrictions and he, drops their margins down quite a bit. He, he takes their operating margin down quite a bit. And then he says there will be some fines and calls that the wild card. But he makes those points and then translates them all into evaluation. So he gives a, he knocks off a little bit of revenue. He slows down revenue growth quite a bit. He, I mean dropping all the way to 2.75% annual revenue growth 10 years from now talks about his tax rate, he talks about his operating margin, and builds all that into a DCF. I tend to be, I think we've talked about this, I tend to prefer just slap a multiple on. I think deep dive DCF work is sometimes seeing the trees for the forest rather than looking big picture, but I think in this case where you have so much noise, it really helps focus on what matters. And so he does his work, he comes up with a valuation, and he says, look, he wrote this article before Facebook had its little bump this week from the Congress testimony of Mark Zuckerberg, but he says, I think there's value here. And so I see the stock is worth 181 versus it was at 155, and those are the numbers. And so, so much of what we look at in Seeking Alpha, you have the qualitative analysis, and you have the quantitative, and it's hard to combine the two and I, for example we I worked on pro for a long time and we work on pro and I think that's where those articles those are the articles that tend to do the best job of that is combining those two elements and he's doing that here in a really nice way on a company that everybody knows and has opinions about and it it raises the level of discussion from more than just I don't like Facebook I do like Facebook they're going to grow to the moon nobody's using Facebook anymore, et cetera. It, it puts it into numbers so that you can have something to discuss, real food for thought. That's what I think yeah. was so impressive about that part.
0: Yeah, I agree. One thing I, that came to mind as you were describing this, and we're looking at this table of all the different inputs to his model and his rationale, and he says, you know, revenue will drop a certain amount based on advertisers pulling out and users' Uh, growth slowing or even users attrition. And he goes through each of these and they're kind of in a bucket. And that's one thing that I want to flag for this that I will probably come back to is there's a vibe I get from his valuation approach that is a little bit check the boxes because he has this framework that he's developed and thought of so much. I don't necessarily know based on the article itself, and I'm sure he'd have a really clear and intelligent response to this, but we have that box of revenues, we have operating margin, tax rate, growth, all the assumptions. I don't really get a sense of how he's weighting each of those factors. And I'm sure that if we played around with his model, we'd get a better sense of the relative impact. So while I agree that there is a good sort of top-level connection between the qualitative and the quantitative here, one thing that doesn't totally come across easily, based on this approach to writing the article, is how every factor plays into the story. Are you with me on that, or what do you think? He does offer his. He has a link to his Excel, which yeah,
1: I just I I, just I didn't. It. Right, I did as well, and it seems like he's he he. Well, so open his Excel if everybody wants to go to his article and open his Excel. There's the second sheet is stories to numbers. And I guess that's what I was getting at. It's enjoying. I hear what you're saying in terms of, I think that's his process. I think it's a very sort of, let me go through all the boxes and spell it out in numbers and not, not leave it up to into supposition over what's more important. Or your intuition.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Here's what revenues will be in my estimate. Here's what operating margins will be. Of course, Operating margin is not going to just sit at 42% from 2023 to 2028 or whatever in his model, right. but, but it does give you a sense. And as a quick aside, just we don't have to belabor Facebook too much, but I, I did peek at their 10K. Their numbers, their growth right now is phenomenal. They are right. growing free cash flow, 50%. They're growing revenue really fast. They're getting operating leverage. Like, it really, ignore everything about the qualitative aspects of the business and just look at their numbers, and it really is a phenomenal business. And that's what the base is, and then for him to then be able to analyze here, I think is, yeah, it, it helps. So, so I'm not sure if I totally follow the
0: concern. Okay, I'll try. And, I'll try can I, I'm going to try again because I want to I keep coming back to this. I think this model and this approach are really strong in terms of coming at stocks, formulating a reasonable expectation for the state of the world going forward, and basing, it goes back to Bayesian updating, I guess. So you have, you have your prior expectations, and that's based on sort of historical performance and what's reasonable to expect based on your interpretation of the world as it is today. But it's sort of bounded within that system of understanding things based on, you know, trailing five years business. And a lot of times, that's going to be a really effective approach to valuation. I think, though, that it may be the mirror image of the strengths we were talking about before, that special situations, weirdo things, uh, where where if you're analyzing a company and you're expecting some sort of dramatic departure from the way things have been in the past, or you feel the need to account for that. I think that flowing a bunch of reasonable expectations into a model in this way, this approach is going to work a lot of the time, but I'm wondering if that's a limitation here. So say, for example, you don't have all this information, say for a spinoff, for example, or you have some sort of prior view about some sort of tail risk event that's man, may manifest. you may not be able to throw all that into just right. these stories to numbers framework. and so that's what I'm trying to get at here is I'm sure that Professor Demotoren has a great framework for, for spin-offs and everything because he's, he attacks valuation from all different perspectives. I do think there is some risk in if you build out a framework that has this much robustness to it that you may be overfitting your model to the past or you may be overfitting your model to your sort of mental framework. Every model is going to have leaks and I think that's where I'm just trying to probe for some leaks in this approach. Uh, I think it's worth spending some time thinking about things like tail risk because, you know, these are all reasonable assumptions. And he says in his article to kind of stunt on people who I'm sure he just gets students all the time who raise their hand and go, but, you know, like 20% growth doesn't make any sense. And, and he has to sort of patiently be like, look, just download the spreadsheet and put in your own assumptions. These are mine. Let's let's move on. And then he goes to the <laughs> next slide. I'm sure that's happened like 20 times <laughs> in this year to to the guy, because it ha- well, I was in business school, so I know I know that kid, <laughs> and uh, and it is it, so irritating to me. And so I I see when I saw him preempt that by like download my spreadsheet, put in your own assumptions. The one thing that that doesn't allow you you to do that he doesn't address is sort of the spreadsheet itself and the framework itself. He sort of takes that as axiomatic and with good reason he's successful as a dean of valuation. I just wanna point out that you may be overconfident as a result of having a model that seems to account for everything. At the end of the day, you're still trapped in this set of assumptions, reasonable state of the world thing. So yeah. that's that's what I wanna that's what I want to pick at here, because I think that's it's so robust and we praise him for that. I still think there is some kind of leak in the boat, or maybe I'm just always looking for that.
1: Well, I think what you're... No, I, I get what you're saying now. I think the two, two things that come out of that are this works a lot better for an established company that would seem to have a relatively more predictable future, and he does take it as axiomatic. So we discussed last time and had a very hard time finding how Google might have trouble, and he's similarly taking an axiomatic stance that Facebook will continue to do well, that sure, people are upset about this, but that Facebook has a moat and people will continue to do well, which may or may not be true. It's, it is possible that people are not using Facebook so much anymore. They're more using Instagram or WhatsApp, or, which is all great for Facebook as well. But it could be that somebody eventually develops Snapchat got kind of beat up by Facebook and Facebook is very good at stunting their competitors, but that doesn't mean they will continue to be. And there's sort of built into this. He does allow that
0: growth will slow and whatever else, but, but to like 20%, right? That's, right. He's and then like, terms, he's like, growth will slow to still phenomenal. Right. So wait, that maybe that goes back to, I'm, and you might've had another point, but I just want to jump in here quickly on a couple things. So that goes back to Bayesian. Bayesian updating, where you update your prior assumptions based on new information, there's still some weight to the prior assumptions. And I think he's sort of an avowed Bayesian. Your priors have a weight in your modeling of expectations. And I think we see that here. We see that your prior expectations influence your overall expectation. So one thing that this whole approach supposes is that your prior expectations have a strong degree of validity. There is a sort of anchoring on the past or anchoring on the world as it is today. And something unheard of happening isn't factored in here. And it shouldn't be, right? He has a, he has a distribution. I think there's something to that. You may have this robust modeling experience he accounts for it, but I just want to, I want to drill down on that. The second thing I want to drill down on is the vulnerability of Facebook. And now I'm being the kid who raises his hand and goes, but that's not a reasonable expectation. <laughs> but I want to do it because when I looked at Wikipedia for a network effect, everyone talks, say Facebook is a social network. The competitive advantage, the strategic advantage that's so strong with Facebook is that it's a net- network good. It gets stronger and creates more value the more people adopt it. The graphic illustrating a network good in Facebook is a rotary telephone. I just think that that shows there is tail risk here, and it's meaningful in the sense that a new new technology can come along that will just upend and render Facebook similar to the way that landline phones are now today. They're basically worthless. They're just vectors for spammy communication. And you can already see the shadows of that story playing out in Facebook, the way that the ad targeting works and the way that it kind of worms its way into a certain value proposition for advertisers. That someone could come in and just break through the walls and tip over the tables on that. And When you combine those two things, you combine the possibility of an outlier event taking place and the sort of Bayesian approach that we have here, which is robust and probably does, at the end of the day, account for those eventualities. We see his distribution here. It's still, he's clearly focused on the peak of the distribution. That's his approach. So right. that's, that's all I want to get out there.
1: Right. It is interesting if from the business analysis perspective because the rotary telephone took a lot of time to be replaced, and technology moves faster. And Facebook's technology and their edge is just that you can use their network to post stuff. And it, like it's interesting to me that younger people use Instagram a lot and not Facebook. And me as in social media terms an old person looking at Instagram it's like I don't get it it it's
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's a little easier it's a little bit more adapted to the phone but why you're not sticking it to the man by being on Instagram instead of Facebook i guess you know all these Facebook owns Instagram right 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 facebook and that's and that's one of the most clever things about facebook's management over time is that they have bought these potential competitors yeah. and swallowed them up and done really well with that. But I'm getting in the weeds a little bit. I think the point is it is not hard to imagine somebody designing a better mousetrap. It is not hard to imagine fragmentation, I think. I think that's yeah. something that's it's not... Fragmentation meant- of a, a social network. Fragmentation of interests, I think. Uh-huh. Se- Seeking Alpha is a pretty good example of this, for example, is that yeah. and there are there are other <laughs> No, I, I'm not trying to niche
0: yeah, niche.
1: B- Go ahead. But sorry. niche, ahead. right, yeah, that's what it is, right? It, there are other stock market websites, but it's this idea of serving niche interests. It may be if the mm-hmm. niche is big enough, it may swallow that. Up. I don't think Facebook has good stock talk, for example. And
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay, I want to stay on this for a second, cause, right? Because there's so much discussion around Facebook sort of having manipulative content, having content that exploits people's vulnerabilities or people's tendencies to believe certain things based on their how appealing they are. And, you know, in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the, the level of depth and the, the sort of willful desire to appeal to your your worst tendencies. I do wonder if there's a vulnerability in Facebook that people are going to potentially realize. I stopped going on Facebook because I sort of recognized that none of the content it was serving me, even though it was from my friends in my social network, was of any real interest to me and certainly was not ever going to really influence any decisions that I made. There, there's a couple layers to this. One is, if people start to recognize Facebook as a purveyor of information that's preying primarily on their manipulative, on manipulative tendencies and human cognitive biases, the kinds of things that make people make suboptimal decisions, and that's huge in investing, and maybe a reason why Facebook is not a successful investing platform because it's geared at appealing to your emotions, to your warm and fuzzies, to your sense of belonging instead of rational decision-making. Now, there have been a lot of businesses that have been very successful for a very long time placing that bet, that, right. that human emotion and human fallibility is actually the source of profit. But if that dynamic becomes completely exposed To the user base then potentially you do have a revolt there if everyone knows that facebook is a purveyor is pretends to be a place where you can see what your friends and family are doing but really is geared at manipulating your behavior in the real world that would be a problem and ultimately i think that the people aren't better off using facebook i just think that's sort of true i think it's an addictive product but i don't think it's really Again, we're in the weeds on this, but I just, I think it's interesting that there's a tie in between rational utility maximizing behavior and the kind of behavior that Facebook induces in you, which is, is sort of at least on occasion, the opposite, manipulative, biased behavior.
1: Yeah, I, agree. I don't have anything good to add. I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> so I, let's, I, move,
0: let's move on. We're being we, the annoying kid.
1: Maybe then the last... Let's go back to the article. The last thing is so interesting to me is how Professor de Modern uses... Instead of a margin of safety, he has this histogram of potential values, and he's essentially saying, I think, that instead of applying an arbitrary 20%, 30%, 50% margin that would be, oh, maybe I got this wrong, he says... I've applied some risk-based analysis to the different inputs. I got a fair value, and if I can buy something for cheaper than that fair value, I will, is how I understand it at least. Is that sort of how you understand
0: his approach? When I look at it, yeah, basically, here's how I understand it. You look at the distribution that comes from, so he's. it's hard maybe on a podcast, but he has, I'll try and describe it because it's sort of image-based he has a distribution a normal distribution of revenue growth a sort of uniform distribution of operating margin a sort of fat right-tailed cost of capital another uniform distribution for lost ad sales and then i don't even know what you'd call it basically a triangle of fines and legal fees so he's he's set out for each input basically a mean and a standard deviation and then he flows all that into one final output, which is, turns out to be this fairly fat-tailed distribution where a lot more of the area is in upside and a fair amount of the area is in dramatic upside for the stock. And so he doesn't take the – here's where I think it's really strong. When we do margin of safety analysis, we pick an intrinsic value and we use a point estimate and we don't account for variance in the outcome. We just say, okay, you know, advanced six is worth X dollars a share. I need to be below that by a certain amount to be sure that I'm right. He sort of is fleshing out that concept by saying, here's the distribution of possible outcomes according to my model. The current price is Towards the left side of that distribution where there's a lot of there's more upside than downside in terms of the possible outcomes. And so I so I buy. So I buy based on where I am in the distribution of possible valuations. Which in a way is more sophisticated because it just shows it allows you to quantify where you think you are in a way that margin of safety analysis doesn't. And you know what else it does? That we talked about before, missing out on opportunities on the upside. Here he can say, say he buys and then later on the stock goes up, he can say, well now I'm at like the 80% level of my valuation distribution. You can quantify, instead of just, I've hit the intrinsic value I can sell, he's quantifying where he might be. And that again is more robust. So I was really floored by this. It basically to me is like, here for all you value people, just here's the distribution and look at it and I'm comfortable with this. And he just sort of is slam dunking on everybody, I think. So I was impressed. But do you think there's any sort of flaws to this? or what, What's your reaction? You reacted to this because he calls out margin safety in particular. Why is that? Let me go back to our last podcast and a
1: comment we got on the article from a star commenter on seeking alpha who shout out to charlie's
0: munger who not charlie munger
1: no religion
0: it's just a funny goofy handle charlie's munger with an apostrophe s charlie's munger like charlie's angels but charlie's munger (laughs) just wanted to clarify for sure that it wasn't actually charlie munger
1: He just said, look, you're crazy, 50% margin of safety on Google, which is what, that was my valuation. You actually said that your valuation would have been even lower to where you would buy. And of course, that's right. Google is not a cigar, but my process was try to give them a lot of credit for their business value by coming up with a higher multiple and higher intrinsic value, and then discount for the all the risks for the possibility that I'm an idiot for the possibility that I messed it up and get to a price that I'm comfortable with. And that's my process. And I think what you're saying is right, that this is a more sophisticated approach by a long shot that doesn't in and of itself make it better. Yeah. I good I, sus- I suspect it is, but there's also time value, my time value, your time value, any investor's time value. Is it, mm-hmm. So much better if I you know, and maybe this is where I should just go invest in an index if I don't have time to look up new stocks or whatever, but is it so much better to spend the two, three, four hours to break down all of these details yes. and come up with a histogram as compared to just I saying, think, you
0: say yes. You, do you think it's worth no, it? No, no, no. I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head when it comes to statistical analysis. This is the way I think about just about everything. And I think it's something that a lot of people working with statistics, there's a pitfall here. The pitfall is when you have a histogram or you do anything in terms of your information gathering, there is a cost Associated with gathering and processing information. Mm-hmm. Just as a weird example here, you know, there are a certain number of bars on Professor Demoderan's histogram. It's because he ran a simulation that has only a certain number of iterations. He could have run a simulation that has 10 times or 1,000 times the number of iterations that he did, but he made some kind of choice that the computational time that this would be good enough, right? So even when we're at this level where the thing looks really sophisticated, everyone has to make this trade-off of the cost and benefit of acquiring and processing information. And I think when we start opening spreadsheets or we start running simulations, we can forget that. And we start just looking at it as this is the truth instead of this is, an output that's based on the amount of cost I was willing to bear to better understand the world. So I'm completely with you, Daniel, on this. The mar- They're just different tools. Margin of safety is one tool. This is another tool. And I think we often fall into a trap of because something is more sophisticated, it gives us a more useful understanding of the world when really we just need to understand is this good enough to affect the decision that I'm making and help me make a better decision. And we see this in business a lot. People will do a a giant research project on something when they could have just kind of looked around. You know, maybe you can just, you can get the same insight constructing a really rigorous survey or just by talking to 10 or 20 relevant People face-to-face. I'm talking a long time about this because I think I believe it strongly that you need to fit your approach to the costs and benefits of acquiring the information. And I think that's what you're hitting on here. I really like that you got there because I think it's a perfectly reasonable expectation that a margin of safety analysis can serve basically the same function as this histogram approach does. I think all
1: of that is not to criticize the professor's approach because I think that works for him and I think that's so much that's what I what our first point was I like how much Professor and has a process adjusted and is needed and has a framework that allows for new information and the fact that he does not use margins and safety but instead uses this distribution of outcomes is great I think that works so well for him I imagine I don't know what is performances I don't know his but,
0: performance but i you imagine should find the histogram of it
1: but, well and that's there's so much uncertainty right there's no yeah. you can get it right for the wrong reason i i actually not to talk like the guy who who's telling you about his bad beat but i made a similar or i don't remember what i'm sure it was thousands time less sophisticated but i remember a friend facebook ipo And it was really exciting, and everybody used Facebook, and so everybody talked about it. And so I had a friend who knew I was interested in the market. I wasn't yet working for Seeking Alpha, but she's like, you know, my kids use Facebook. I'm interested in Facebook. Is it, you know, do you think we should buy? And so I spent some time studying it. It wasn't the sort of stock I was interested in, but I looked at it. And I actually, not so far from what the the professor, I think, said the company was worth twenty nine. I said I would buy shares at something like 16, which, like, and he's- Valuation hipster. But that's almost where it bottomed, and I, like, didn't pull the trigger, and I missed out on this huge rise, but I think that's, was I right because I was relatively close to the bottom, or was I lucky? Like, there's this degree of uncertainty. Could we have known that Facebook was going to be a titan? Could we have known that- Cheryl Sandberg was going to continue to work well, that Mark Zuckerberg, like, could we have known all these things in 2012? No, there was, there was a degree of uncertainty there, and there always is an investing, and I think you have to grow comfortable with it. And for the professor, it's by having this histogram that accounts for fat tails or skinny tails or strange conclusions, and for me, it's by taking a margin of safety that still could mess up, but that at least I'm going to miss opportunities, but I'm also going to be comfortable with when I buy, I feel like there's a decent chance there's upside. And so I guess that's how do you assess for, how do you address uncertainty is a key to investing. And I think he's got a great framework that works for him. He's got more time than I do or more skill than (laughs) I do to
0: break down
1: each company, but yeah, so that I guess that that's what I'm taking away. I think the fact that he doesn't use margin safety is really interesting. But I think his framework and the way he quantifies the narrative is what makes this a really nice analysis. And so that's why I wanted to talk about it, and we've talked about it. I think that's that was the aim. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Anything else that co- occurs to you, anything else that...
0: Yeah, there Facebook. is a couple things. I do wanna I wanna be the annoying kid who raises his hand real quick. I opened Raise up the spreadsheet and I just wanna say that I I adjusted two inputs on the on the valuation. So I did a five percent compounded annual revenue growth rate over the next five years. That's ridiculously low compared to where it is now. But say say there is some sort of tail event where it's not out of the question that revenue growth could effectively halt. If regulators crack down, you know, the evil Democrats take Congress in the 2018 elections and they socialize Facebook and make it a regulated <laughs> utility and they say you can only grow at 5%. It's not, it's a tail event, but it's, there is a world where that could happen, right? Let's just entertain the possibility for a second. And then... I, I just changed the EBIT margin to 30%, which still seems really robust to me, and I think it illustrates how good of a business Facebook is. That that's a very bearish assessment relative to where the world is now. I get a valuation output of 72.49 for that. Facebook is currently trading at 164. So my point is that there's a reasonable state of the world where Facebook is value is cut in less than half. There is some conceivable state of the world. If you accept that and go along with me on that, just forget the specific numbers, but take that into account. If you look at Professor de distribution, his histogram, we have a 0% percentile 6791. So I got down to that valuation by tweaking the assumptions and. I guess it comes back to he will just say, look, it's on the distribution. Get out of my class. But then <laughs> if you go up to the 10% probability level, it's at $123, which is just seems like a reasonable amount of downside for any stock. And he's going to come back again and say, it's quantified in the spreadsheet. Stop doing this to me. But Bingo. I, I, I want to point out that you can and should stress test and sanity test your histograms, and distributions so that you don't become overconfident. A lot of risk modeling that was in vogue during and leading up to the financial crisis relied on this kind of quantitative assessment. And the tail tail events happened. A reasonable series of events in states of the world took place that created valuations that were astronomically different from what everyone was looking at. And so I... I want to come back to that here. I think you you can stress test this model and, and just say to yourself, does a cumulative 10% probability distribution of a reasonable amount of downside really make sense to me? And I would have to look at this a little more carefully, but that would be, I think, perhaps the smart version of the annoying kid does do that work and does layer that on to the analysis. And I think that comes back to false confidence based on having this robust model. I would try and avoid that by doing some of this sort of poking and prodding. And again, he comes back, he sighs heavily and says, Mike, that's why I gave you the spreadsheet to download. But you don't want to get carried away by your model. That's all. Right. So, okay, I just, I want to end on a, on a on a note of reverence because I really like this article and I really like Professor Damodaran a lot, and I've I've learned a lot from him just for all the free stuff he's put online. So I want to say, you know, he would probably come back with several responses. One is, again, look at the distribution. It's all quantified there. You can put your own assumptions and that's fine. The other thing is that you could just come back to is the very basic risk reward trade-off. We're compensated for taking that risk as investors in stocks. The market prices this risk and offers you a reward for taking it. That's the whole basis of mean variance optimization, expected return and standard deviation. That's how we get sharp ratios and all this other stuff. So I don't want to end on a note of, of picking on this approach because it's, it's something that is transparent and honest and robust. Maybe that's where I would leave it there are these we we want to search for these flaws when we see something that looks this good and looks this strong as a kind of double check of the thought process and maybe that ties back to how do we the theme of the episode how do we update our views when the world changes around us maybe as a part of that we need to look back at the process itself and i think that's why you honed in on that rather than the investment story here is looking at a process and evaluating it from a kind of meta standpoint and knowing where you stand on these issues. For sure.
1: Yeah. And just, yeah, being comfortable sticking to your process while also adjusting your process. That's risk.
0: Needed. It's risk. Yeah. That's what variants and outcomes. It can happen. Understand it. Be ready for it. That's where it, that's it.
1: Trust the process.
0: All right. I think we, <laughs> I think we've beaten this one to death. What do you think? We're all sick of Facebook. We're yeah, sick We're it, all sick of it. But delete it. Or don't. Invest in it. Invest in it and don't delete it. But don't don't invest, no in invest. It and delete it. Well, there are probably people who do that. You
1: gotta let's head to out it. here. Let's get out of here. <laughs> no investment advice. Thank you, Professor Demotoron. Fascinating
0: work. Yeah, AJ. not investment advice, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's get out of here, <laughs> Bye now. All right, bye. <laughs>
1: Thanks for listening to Seeking Alpha's Behind the Idea. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes and Apple Podcasts. If you have a chance, please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes. If you have feedback, suggested articles, or anything else for Behind the Idea, tweet at Daniel Seeking A or at M. Brooks Taylor, or email me at Daniel at SeekingAlpha.com or Mike at MTaylor at SeekingAlpha.com. This has been a Seeking Out for a production. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Behind the Idea.